This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, we here at Radio Parallax do consider that it is, in fact, the final countdown towards the November 3rd election, which is going to decide what the next four years are like. That uh, song was a big hit by Europe many years ago, the final countdown, is on the one hand a little over the top, a little apocalyptic, but you know what? We are, in fact, facing an election, which I think is probably like few others, or perhaps like none others that have preceded it in American history. We have had in the past people who were grossly unqualified to serve as a chief executive. We have had people who were shockingly ignorant of world affairs. We've had crooks. And we've had people whose, let's just say, mental health was a matter of conjecture. But I don't think that ever in American history have we faced the prospect of a re-election of a man who is all of that rolled into one and, and, and so much more. I took a trip since our last program and drove down to Southern California. And I, I would note that it is relatively safe to, to do traveling if you're sensible about it. In this instance, it was a driving trip down to Southern California. The comedy relief to that trip probably came when I saw a lawn sign in the town of Cambria down near Morro Bay that simply said, Biden 2020, he won't inject you with bleach. And you, yes, you can bet I'll be ordering one of those for my front yard. But when I say that, you know, I, I have been losing sleep over the prospect of a Trump re-election, I, I, I mean that quite literally. I have had nightmares where I contracted COVID and was having difficulty breathing and facing the prospect of a, a grim future. Or worse yet, no future at all. I had a chance during this travel to speak with two individuals who have had COVID and survived. Both were over the age of 70. Both described it as a nightmarish experience. One man described how he became so weak that he fell onto the floor and did not have the strength to rise up and get on his cell phone and call for help. He laid there for 18 hours until friends discovered him. He described being nauseated, feverish, extremely weak, and having experienced a loss of sense of smell. Although he went all through this many weeks ago, he noted that his sense of smell has still not completely returned. And although he still feels a bit under the weather, he's grateful for the fact that the worst seems to clearly be behind him and that he's going to live out the rest of his life in a normal fashion. Or so it seems. The other individual I spoke with was someone I think we mentioned on this program some weeks ago and that uh, a friend had gotten exposed to this individual. He had uh, come by the house to to pay a visit to a a friend of her boyfriend's. She made herself very scarce during the visit because she was fearful that he had gotten exposed. They'd all gone to a billiard parlor recently wherein the Orange County proprietor was taking a very cavalier attitude about masks and social distancing. He too noted a loss of sense of smell, and noted that he felt very bad indeed as my friends drove him to the hospital. They were all joking about it afterwards. 
saying that, yeah, when they, when they dropped him off, they were saying, oh, Tom, you're going to be fine. Whereas on the way back to the car, they were both convinced that was the last time they were going to see him alive. They said he looked very bad. He said he saw pictures of himself in mid-viremia and uh, had to agree that he, he looked pretty awful. Luckily for him, it did not uh, cause respiratory problems, and he was not retained in the hospital, but rather was sent home. Uh, now, in the wake of the exposure to this gentleman, you wonder about testing and having others around him who were suspicious of his possible exposure, and particularly when he was sick as a dog. Well, you would think that, you know, in a sensible society, those people could have gotten tested at that point to see how things were going. But, uh, of course, tests were quite scarce a few months ago and remain scarce to this day. Anyway, we're going to try and get to the, that, uh, that cluster of people down in Orange County and see if they will come and speak with us about their experiences here. While on the trip, my friend received a phone call letting her know that her stepmother had, I guess it was a niece or a cousin, not sure which, who had suffered within a few days the loss of her husband and father to COVID-19. My friend herself had her stepdad test positive for COVID-19, a man who is high risk in a nursing facility, a man whom I hope has tested falsely positive for the virus. What's curious about his case was that he was a random test. They just did a spot test in the facility to see if anybody would test positive, and guess what? He did. Fortunately, he still has no symptoms and, again, perhaps is a false positive. Some weeks back, I, I spoke with uh, a nurse at uh, UC Irvine's Medical Center down in Orange County who was giving me some updates as to how things were being managed there. I'm sorry to report that she too has now tested positive for COVID-19. One friend's daughter's a friend's daughter has had a friend who has uh, tested positive along with her boyfriend, both in their 20s, both relatively asymptomatic. But just doing a survey in the past week of people I've been hanging out with, I tallied up eight cases of COVID-19, two of which were fatal. So imagine my horror upon getting home and scrolling through the news, which I had not been keeping up on for several days, and finding this. New York Times from August 25th. The CDC changes testing guidelines to exclude those exposed to virus who don't exhibit symptoms. Peace notes that the CDC quietly modified its coronavirus testing guidelines this week to exclude people who do not have symptoms of COVID-19, even if they have been recently exposed to the virus. Noted the Times, experts questioned the revision, pointing to the importance of identifying infections in the brief window immediately before the onset of symptoms when many individuals are thought to be most contagious. Models suggest that about half of transmission events can be traced back to individuals still in the so-called pre-symptomatic stage before they have started feeling ill, if they ever feel sick at all. A more lax approach to testing, experts say, could delay crucial treatments as well as obscure the coronavirus's true spread in the community. Case numbers remain persistently high across much of the United States, although they have been falling in recent weeks to an average of about 43,000 new cases a day, which is a drop from a peak of more than 66,000 cases a day uh, one month ago. Of course, we're going to have to see how this pans out over the next week or two. 
there's already some evidence that the Sturgis motorcycle rally has been responsible for, well, I think people came back to something like 61% of the counties in the United States of America from the Sturgis rally, where some cases of coronavirus have already been documented. We'll, we'll see where this leads. If you saw photographs of that rally, you can see that everybody was crammed together in close uh, proximity uh, without wearing masks. No doubt in many instances scoffing at the idea that they needed to take such precautions. But back to the New York Times piece. It quoted a Dr. Krutika Kupalie, infectious disease physician in Palo Alto, California, as saying this is potentially dangerous. Restricting testing to only people with obvious symptoms of COVID-19, which has been what we've been doing for most of this pandemic, means you're not looking for a lot of people who are potential spreaders of disease, she added. I feel like this is going to make things worse. Noted the Times, prior iterations of the CDC's testing guidelines struck a markedly different tone, explicitly stating that, quote, Testing is recommended for all close contacts, end quote, of people infected with the coronavirus, regardless of symptoms. The agency also specifically emphasized, quote, the potential for asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission, end quote, as an important factor in the spread of the disease. The CDC's newest version, posted August 24th, amended the agency's guidelines to say that people who have been in close contact with a person with the coronavirus, typically defined as being within six feet for at least 15 minutes, quote, do not necessarily need a test, unquote, if they do not have symptoms. Exceptions, the agency noted, might be made for vulnerable individuals or if healthcare providers or state or local public health officials recommend testing. Again, we're back to relying on state or local public health officials. This is what's coming out of the CDC, the federal government's premier agency for dealing with epidemics. The piece also quoted Suzanne Butler Wu, described as clinical microbiologist at the University of California's Keck School of Medicine, as saying, wow, that is a walk back. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and that's a really big change. Dr. Butler Wu said she's concerned the guidelines would be misinterpreted as implying that people without symptoms are unable to pass the coronavirus to others, a falsehood that experts have been trying for months to dispel. Noted this reporting in the first, uh, the first run-through on this, on this item. The reason behind the shift in testing recommendations remains unclear. In a response to an inquiry from the New York Times, a representative for the CDC directed the questions to the Department of Health and Human Services, where an HHS spokesperson said that the decision to be tested should be made in collaboration with public health officials or your health care provider based on individual circumstances and the status of community spread. Which, of course, says nothing about why it is they reversed their previous position on getting a test if you're exposed. In reporting the following day on this item, we have this from the New York Times. The Center for Disease Control was instructed by higher-ups in the Trump administration to modify its coronavirus testing guidelines this week to exclude people who do not have symptoms. One official said the directive came from the top down. Another said the guidelines were not written by the CDC, but were imposed. Admiral Brett Girard, the administration's coronavirus testing czar, told reporters the guidelines ultimately belong to the CDC, specifically its director, Dr. Robert Redfield. But he also said other members of President Trump's coronavirus task force were involved. It was also noted that the final debate over this guideline change took place at a task force meeting 
on August 20th. That happened to be the same day that Dr. Anthony Fauci, a member of the task force, was having surgery under general anesthesia to remove a polyp on his vocal cord. He was not present. According to one person familiar with Dr. Fauci's thinking, Dr. Fauci has some concerns about advising against testing for people exposed to the virus, which is spread by asymptomatic people as well as those with symptoms. And yes, indeed, as reported by Dr. Sanjay Gupta in CNN, Anthony Fauci was, in fact, under general anesthesia when the meeting took place to set up this change. Probably just a coincidence, wouldn't you say? Fauci told Gupta, I was under general anesthesia in the operating and was not a part of any discussion or deliberation regarding the new testing recommendations. I am concerned about the interpretation of these recommendations and worried it will give people an incorrect assumption that asymptomatic spread is not of great concern. In fact, it is. Now, U.S. Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary Brett Girard has said in speaking to reporters that the updated testing guidelines originated from within the CDC and were written by multiple authors, including... He said, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Deborah Bricks, and Stephen Hahn. Stephen Hahn is in charge of things over at the FDA. The Girard also mentioned CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield, saying all the task force experts advise on coronavirus-related matters. Of course, he doesn't mention that if they have concerns, they, they are sometimes just overridden by top-down orders from the Trump administration. Brett Girard has denied that politics were involved in this. He said, there was no weight on the scales by the president or vice president or Secretary Azar, referring to Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services, his boss. This was a product produced by the scientific and medical people that was discussed extensively at the task force. We remind you, as did the New York Times, that Donald Trump has suggested that the nation should do less testing, arguing that doing more tests was driving coronavirus case numbers up and making the United States look bad. But experts say the true measure of the pandemic is not the case numbers, but test positivity rate, the percentage of tests coming back positive. Experts have called these revisions alarming and dangerous, noting the country needs more testing, not less. They have expressed deep concern that the CDC is posting guidelines that its own officials did not author. The former CDC director, Tom Frieden, railed against the move on Twitter. So here we are doing less testing. Remember when the president advised us how he counseled that we needed to slow down testing? How he suggested to Axios that there were a lot of people out there that thought we're, you know, we're doing too much testing. And when Axios asked him, who, who, who has said that? Trump responded, oh, read the books, read the manuals without explaining which books or manuals he was referring to. Books and manuals, we dare say, which apparently do not exist in the real world. Anyway, it's pretty hard to find magazines these days, so when I find myself in a Barnes & Noble, as I did down in San Luis Obispo a few days back, I tried to make sure I peruse the magazine rack thoroughly and sometimes buy, for example, an astronomy magazine. In this case, I grabbed a copy of Astronomy along with a copy of Sky and Telescope and was somewhat somewhat surprised to find that this thing has gotten so bad that even the guys writing the columns in Astronomy Magazine feel compelled to jump in. So allow me to quote from the For Your Consideration column by Jeff Hester, which appeared in the September 2020 issue of Astronomy. 
A few months ago, a virus began circulating in China's Hubei province. The virus attacks lung cells that produce surfactants, chemicals that reduce surface tension and help make tissues pliable instead of rigid. From the beginning, epidemiologists understood that the virus had the potential to become a global pandemic of unimaginable scale. For some nations, the U.S. in particular, there was ample warning and plenty of time to act. We pause right there to remind you that a survey done a couple of years ago to assess the readiness of the world's nations in the event of a new pandemic ranked U.S. number one. We were, in theory, the most ready nation on earth for a pandemic. But back to the column. But Wall Street doesn't like that kind of news. Talk of a pandemic might hurt the stock market. Sure, the bodies were piling up in China by the thousands, but here the powers that be and their cable news lackeys spun COVID-19, quote, as a, quote, mild flu. Because no one on the planet was immune, the virus responsible for COVID-19 found fertile ground in every new person it encountered. As we'll discuss in a minute, that may not be absolutely correct, that part about nobody having an immunity. But anyway, noted Jeff Hester, as humans carried armadas of these little molecular machines around the world on airplanes and cruise ships, scientists spoke of when, not if, the virus would arrive in the U.S. But for the powers that be, that didn't compute. COVID-19 was a hoax. When the cases of COVID-19 started showing up on American shores, scientists and public health officials sent up every warning flare they could. If we acted immediately, they said, we could still save untold thousands of lives. But those who might have prevented the carnage had long ago decided that scientists were just a bunch of party poopers who say things nobody wants to hear. A year before, they had fired the very scientists who might have stopped COVID-19 in its tracks. Why should they start listening now? Instead of taking action, they proclaimed, one day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. But, noted Jeff Hester, keynote speaker, coach, and astrophysicist, there is no miracle to be had. A few paragraphs later, he noted, if you've followed my writing for astronomy, you know that I frequently talk about the nature of scientific knowledge and the way it's under attack. This, what we're going through right now with COVID-19, is why this matters. If this pandemic has a silver lining, it is that we might start to show physical reality the respect it demands and accept that reality doesn't give a rodent's hindquarters about beliefs, ideology, convenience, or anything of the sort. Well, yeah, you know, that's, he's got a point if, if you believe all that science stuff. We do, of course. So let's talk about more science stuff. As mentioned on the last couple of shows, coronavirus has popped up again down in New Zealand. Noted the week, more than three months after New Zealand was declared free of the coronavirus, about 75 cases have been detected in Auckland. Authorities don't know where the new outbreak originated. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern put the city under a two-week lockdown and sent troops to patrol the island's ports. The country's election has also been pushed back a month to October 17th. But Arden disputed President Trump's charge that her country was experiencing a, quote, big surge, unquote, of the virus. She said, anyone who's following will quite easily see that New Zealand's nine cases in a day do not compare to the United States' tens of thousands. The death rate from COVID-19 is currently 52 deaths per 100,000 in the U.S. In New Zealand, it's 0.45 per 100,000. We noted on this show when New Zealand was crowing about the fact that it was coronavirus-free, well, I think our comment was, for now. 
The great puzzle about New Zealand is that the country apparently went 102 days without recording any new locally acquired COVID-19 cases. But on August 11th, the country was rocked by news that four members of a family in Auckland had tested positive for the virus without an identifiable source of infection. Authorities in Auckland began testing anyone with even remote connections to the new cases, as well as all port workers, staff at quarantine facilities, and anyone with a cold or flu. Within a week, by August 18th, this testing blitz had identified another 65 cases connected to the original family cluster, as well as one in a man employed at a quarantine facility. New Scientist reports that genetic sequencing suggests the new outbreak has been caused by a strain that recently entered New Zealand. It most closely resembles a strain currently circulating in England. How it sneaked in New Zealand remains a mystery. There was a suggestion that it might have entered the country in a frozen food shipment since one member of that Auckland family that first tested positive in fact worked in a chilled food warehouse, but so far there's been no evidence confirming that possibility. I mentioned some many shows ago that coronavirus, uh, I'm led to understand from a veterinary medicine source, is quite common in cats, not, not COVID-19, but other coronaviruses. New Scientist notes that the first confirmed case of a pet infected with SARS-CoV-19 was a dog that was in Hong Kong back in February. And since then, there have been at least 26 more confirmed cases in pet, cats, and dogs globally. The question is, should pet owners be worried? And the answer, like so many things in the coronavirus pandemic, is we don't know yet. A small study led by Quang Zhang from the Chinese Academy of Sciences found that 11 of 102 cats that they tested in Wuhan had antibodies showing that they had been infected with SARS-CoV-2. But again, this is an antibody test, and uh, yours truly is still not sure, as I think a lot of people are not sure whether this is... uh, a true antibody to COVID-19 or to other coronaviruses. There's an ongoing study at the Texas A&M University. They tested the pets of 50 U.S. owners with COVID-19 and found three infected cats and one dog. The vet noted these are animals that are at high risk. They're in contact with positive people. So the fact that we've only found four infected pets suggests it's not very common. Most pets with confirmed infections have displayed only mild symptoms. Of the four identified by the team, two had no obvious symptoms. One was sneezing and the other seemed, was described as overly sleepy. Yeah, judging by my cats, I guess that means they're they're sleeping more than 12 hours a day. And of course, we get this kind of advice out of of, uh, Hong Kong. To be safe, owners with COVID-19 should stay as far away from their pets as possible. Sure, that's useful advice. Anyway, the punchline is that the risk of catching COVID-19 from pets is considered probably low, but some authorities think we should extend social distancing rules to animals until we know more, recommending keeping cats indoors and staying away from other dog walkers when you're out walking your dog. We've been warning you on this program that when it comes to October this year, the month before the November election, we expect to see a remarkable lot of chicanery coming out of the Trump administration. I thought of that when I read in New Scientist that Vladimir Putin announced August 11th that Russia had approved a coronavirus vaccine, and he said the vaccine is safe and effective. Russia apparently plans to start mass vaccinations in October. I think inspiring, perhaps, Donald Trump to uh, 
who knows, announced that we're going to do something similar. Now, in somewhat unusual fashion, this Russian vaccine is being, um, is being given to people in spite of the fact that vaccines normally go through phase one and phase two trials for safety and efficacy. And new vaccines normally go through one or more large phase three trials to find out whether it actually protects against infections. This isn't just a formality, notes new scientist. A vaccine might trigger an immune response in phase two, but this may not be enough to confer real immunity, which you'd find out in phase three. In other words, this Russian vaccine has not been given the full gamut of tests without the data from phase one and phase two. We don't know how safe it is. And without phase three, we don't know if it works. Now, if you're the sort of person that trusts your political leader when he says that he's got something that's safe and effective... Well, then I'm sure that (laughs) the lack of actual evidence in this case would not trouble you. And for those who think that vaccines are going to solve all of our problems or or liable to believe the propaganda that says that, keep in mind that a recent Gallup poll suggests that 35% of people in the U.S. would refuse a vaccine against the virus. A U.K. survey found 16% of British people said they would be unlikely or refuse to take one. Epidemiologists note that if 20 to 30% of a population refuses a vaccine, we'll probably not be able to reach herd immunity. New scientists also had an article about travel in the age of COVID, something near and dear to my heart, having just done a little bit of traveling. It struck me that when the pandemic began, the WHO initially discouraged travel bans, saying they would worsen economic damage without slowing the virus's spread, which was stupid advice. Some countries that adopted strict border controls like New Zealand and Taiwan have in fact been among the most successful in controlling the pandemic. Given the importance of the travel industry, a lot of countries are trying to figure out how to work out some kind of travel corridors. At least European countries are, I think, when it comes to America. We're just pretty much uh, the country everybody wants to shun. We're the country which has coronavirus raging out of control since we're not implementing proper public health measures to keep beating this drum, but it is interesting to note that the Europeans have an option, since their rates are way down, to consider corridors where you might be able to go from one country that's got about the same rate of infection to another. Uh, Corridors are in place between the UK and countries including Italy and Germany, but last week the UK took France, Malta, and the Netherlands off of its travel corridor countries due to some increased numbers of cases. New Scientist notes that some in the travel industry have called for quarantines to be avoided by instead having health checks on arrival. And indeed, many airports around the world, including some in the UK, check people's temperatures before or after flights to screen out those carrying the virus. Of course, it should be noted that while fever is a common symptom of COVID-19, about 4 in 10 of those who catch the virus have no symptoms at all. That number seems to be you know, settling in at around 40% now. In other words, for every 10 people that you know have the disease, you will find four people who have it but do not show symptoms. One thing seems pretty certain that fever is not a universal symptom. Therefore, if you're going to screen people by taking their temperature, you're going to miss a few. Mr. Miller is informing me that I've just about burned through this whole segment. So I think I should just pause, remind you that this pandemic is being horrendously managed here in the United States of America, and we can lay that pretty much at the doorstep of one man, the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. We stand 10 weeks before the November 3rd election, giving us nine more shows to talk about this and point out that pretending that Donald Trump has not 
made all of this infinitely worse is wrong. In fact, he has made all of this infinitely worse and killed tens of thousands of Americans, and the death toll keeps right on rolling. We're going to keep doing what we can to call a spade a spade and point out to you that, you know, we have an important election coming up. No, we're not wildly enthusiastic about the alternatives, but at least it'll get us back to where we can perhaps, perhaps start dealing with reality and the problems the world faces and stop making policy that's based on some guy's crazy notions. Well, actually, before we go, there is one little item that caught my eye that I thought was strangely appropriate for the world we're living in at the moment. So, a tiny little blurb from Uncle John's Bathroom Reader, which noted that in revenge for England's closing of the Libyan embassy in London, back in the mid-1980s, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi ordered that England be deleted from all Libyan maps. In its place was put a new arm of the North Sea bordered by Scotland and Wales. I bring this up because I'm sure Gaddafi felt pretty good about doing this. I'm sure in his own mind he felt he was somehow justified and this was a reasonable thing to do. But of course, England remained where it always has been. It did not actually become a new arm of the North Sea. And if you were a Libyan citizen back in the 80s who decided that, well, they're just going to accept that as the new reality, I'd say that puts you in an analogous position to the people that choose to believe Trump today. Just saying. All right, let's take a break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Got lots more. Stick around.